Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SIAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. If you'd like to know more about SIAC's latest activities, click on the links included on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Southeast Asia, Check out the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's podcast series, SIAC Stories, available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Another great sponsor of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned research centre committed to the study of and engagement with Asia and the Pacific. The Institute's research focuses on politics, security and economic development, emphasising the enhancement of links between businesses, governments and academia. For more information on Griffith Asia Institute's activities, click on their website link on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello and welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Faiza Zakaria from Nanyang Technological University and your host for today. It is such a pleasure to have with me today Farah Bifaki, the author of Authoritarian Modernization in Indonesia's Early Independence Period, The Foundation of the New Order State, 1950-1965, published by Brill in 2020. Dr. Farabi is lecturer at the History Department at Gajamada University in Yogyakarta, Indonesia, and he's the head of the graduate program there. He received his PhD from Leiden in 2014 and is an expert on Indonesian urban history, the political economic history of the Indonesian state and Indonesian business history. Abi, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, welcome, Faiza. Thank you so much for being here. Let me first give a quick overview of your fascinating book before we begin. Authoritarian Modernization in Indonesia's Early Independence Period offers a historical analysis of the foundational years leading to Indonesia's new order state. During the early independence period, the study looks into the structural and ideological state formation during the so-called liberal democracy and Sukarno's guided democracy period running from 1950 to 1965 in total. In particular, it analyzes how an international technical aid network and the dominant managerialist ideology of the period legitimize a new managerial elite. This book discusses the development of education in the civil and military sectors in Indonesia. And from a solid basis of empirical sources, it argues that Sukarno's constitutional reform during the guided democracy inadvertently provided a strong technocratic blueprint for the new order development. 
So I found this book very timely since there has been a resurgent global interest in the origins and formation of authoritarian regimes. As many states around the world drift away from liberal democracy, Indonesia's experiences with such an authoritarian turn in the 1950s and 1960s offers many lessons from history, and I'm excited to learn about them from Dr. Farabi. So let's start with the time period of the book, and that's Sukarno's guided um, democracy period, as well as the liberal democracy period. So you term the um, guided democracy period as a revolution and showed how it set the template for the emergence of the authoritarian new order. So for listeners who might not be familiar with Indonesia, um, can you tell us more about this period of history? Who are the main players and why is it so interesting and significant in Indonesian history? Yeah, uh, thank you, Faiza, for the, Faiza, for the question. So uh, the guided democracy period uh, is a period uh, between 1957 until 1966. Usually people uh, refer to those years. And it's a series uh, in which a series of institutional reforms were initiated by President Sukarno and the army that really ended Indonesia's first experiment with liberal democracy uh, since 1950 until 1957. So some people point uh, the start at the issuance of the presidential decree by Sukarno in 1959, but others, including me, I, I look at it as starting since the end of the second Alisa Stroamijoyo cabinet and the series of anti-corruption measures implemented by the army. Uh, what it did was that it arranged in Indonesian state and society in accordance to Sukarno's vision of a revolution guided by the Republican leadership and planned and managed by the Indonesian population with the help of experts. Thus, uh, there are three elements that make up guided democracy revolution. The first are the expert class, the managerial class, which my book, is, my book focus on. The managerial class are composed of civilian and military public administrators and business managers. The second are the political class, in particular the communists, but also various political leadership of groups in society, both party or societal groups, and the third is, of course, Sukarno himself, who tried to manage this seemingly opposing elite class of managers and experts on one side and political class on the other side. So this period is interesting because while the guided democracy revolution is seen to end in a spectacular hail of violence with the collapse of Sukarno's government and the decimation of uh, Indonesia's communists, the period, in my opinion, is essential in understanding the structural foundation of the new order. Mm, definitely. And is that the reason why you became interested in this topic? And how did you find a fresh angle to this uh, period? Well, you know, I had conducted my bachelor's research on Sukarno's nation-building project in Jakarta, how he symbolically built up the city as the capital of the nation. So I've always had a fondness for the 1950s and 1960s because of its generational potential in Indonesian history. The period was always rather opaque in the eyes of many Indonesian historians, although more interests have come to light nowadays. Uh, the reason for the opaqueness has been the hegemonic narrative developed by the New Order, which defined the period as one of chaos with societal and economic breakdown. Uh, this narrative was developed in a way to absolve the New Order from the Sukarnian project. Uh, by putting distance from Sukarno, the New Order made its case for legitimacy exactly through that contrast. Instead, I want to put back guided democracy as a central and foundational feature in understanding the New Order. Um, Sukarno's guided democracy is central in understanding this period. It is the foundational years that determine the kinds of nation-state and state-society relations that Indonesia would adhere to for the rest of the 20th century. The start of the development state, developmental state is thus, I would argue, it didn't come from the, the rise of the new order, but from the tentative and increasingly assertive position of experts within uh, the guided democracy state. 
So the enmeshing of civilian and military managers also occurred during this period. So this coalescing of managerial elite, uh, which allowed you know the, the new order developmental state to rise. So because you know, I, I it, what really started my question, what animated my research was how is it possible that such a weak and chaotic guided democracy state suddenly transformed into a strong developmental state of the of the new order? That was what guided my my research. And I think it is very interesting that you are intervening on this sort of idea of 1950s as chaos and 1965 onwards as a kind of uh, new order, so to speak. So how do we connect then the 1950s back to sort of revolution and the the sort of more conventional ways in which we define revolution in Indonesia? For example, decolonization against the Dutch in 1945 or um, social revolution in 1948. Do these revolutions sort of feed into each other? Do they flow into each other? And how did the guided democracy revolution um, become connected with these other concepts of revolution? Right. Well, very interesting question, uh, Faiza. Well, you know, my focus on the 50s was in reading the discourses and the narratives produced by Indonesian elite. And when I read like Sukarno's speeches and the main documents of the regime, it helps a lot in deciphering what he meant by revolution. Um, there is a tendency to look at Sukarno as an ideologue whose uh, speeches carry more, you know, the spirit and political conviction instead of a blueprint for future Indonesian society. He was seen as an orator whose words moved the hearts and minds of millions of Indonesians. And by his critics, he was also criticized as a demagogue who incites fear and hatred. Yet, you know, underneath his bravado and fiery theatrical perlocution is sort of a program for the future of Indonesia. His revolution is developmentalist in nature, and in a way... If you look at the, his speeches during the, the uh, Indonesian Revolution, the, the Independence Revolution of 1945 until 1950, it very much is replicating this kind of uh, spirit of the, which are developmentalist in nature. It is based on a reconfiguration of a managerial state. So this revolution which Sukarno uh, pushed forth in the end of the 50s was very much uh, sort of thinking uh, in the, along the lines of, of of creating a managerial state with national planning, with industrialization and economic growth, uh, yet combining this managerial approach with a sweeping political program to move people and the political leadership under a state-guided development regime. This revolution was to ensure that the political position of the people through the political leadership class was to have a a guiding seat in a new managerial-based developmental state. So in this, he probably saw that the political class, the leadership that had obtained an education within the nationalist movement, was slowly to lose their role in the newly educated technical class, uh, managers and experts. So there's this transition between the old leadership and the new leadership of managers and experts. And Sukarno's revolution uh, can be seen as a means to preempt this through the creation and integration of experts and politicians within a guided democracy state. Now, although this aspect failed, his revolution really paved the way for a reordering of the Indonesian state in which experts gained the upper hand um, in particular sites within a highly centralized state. So in in terms of looking at uh, how uh, the revolution of 1945-1946 affected uh, Sukarno's ideas of revolution uh, later in the the end of the 50s, there's very much a strong correlation in a sense that he wants to place political class uh, within a developmentalist state model, which has always been the case, even during uh, the, the, uh, the the period of wartime of the 40s. So we've talked about um, the guided democracy revolution and its 
linked to various concepts of revolution. And the main argument in your book is that the development of a new managerial class during the 1950s and the 1960s resulted in the creation of both the ideological and institutional basis for a military-dominated managerial state. Can you tell us a bit more about the these um, developments and whether they were specific to Indonesia or representative of the colonizing nation-states as a whole? Well, you know, what I meant by the managerial class here uh, really do not so much as uh, to denote their particular efficacious nature. So it's not really uh, about whether they're like uh, efficient managers or not. It's really more of a denotation of a particular new identity of state elite that had appeared in the 1950s. And Indonesia, in this case, was is not unique. Uh, the rise of a managerial ideology was something that had occurred globally. This was something that had excludes in the rise of public administration and management science since the late 19th century. But the retooling of whole economies during the total wars of World War II had provided an impetus uh, for America to model its modernization theory on. So America had a, had a major role in sort of exporting uh, this managerial ideology. And this ideology was something uh, really to counter the state-led developmentalism that propped up that was propped up by the Soviet Union, by China and others, by communist states. So as you can see, both the East and the West within this Cold War dynamic opted to support a kind of state-led model of development. Uh, In a sense, as one famous American social scientist noted, ideology in the 1950s had really died. In particular, the ideology of liberalism had taken a backseat to the ideology of managerialism and the centrality of the state. In this regard, it is important to define Indonesian developmental ideology and the institutional reforms that were implemented prior to and during the guided democracy within this managerialist ideology that was really global in nature at the time. Uh, the global, the Cold War divide between capitalism and communism didn't matter much anymore because there was an agreement to the weaknesses of liberal democracy to achieve development. Instead, the period was grounded in an agreement on the need to achieve a managerial state or at least you know, a, a developmental state. That's the managerial ideology and the necessary institutional reforms to make this happen. Uh, this is where my focus lies in analyzing Sukarno's revolution. We often forget the supremacy of this ideology today because of the shift back towards liberalism in the 1970s and upwards and the proclamation of the end of history with a liberal victory by the early 90s. So the shift back to neoliberalism at the end of the 20th century. Yet, you know, make no mistake, the vision of the people in the 50s, including in Indonesia, was set of a developmental state ran partially by managers and experts. And that so it also brings us to another central concept to your book, which is authoritarian modernization. And I think from your previous answer, it does seem that it's a it's a global development and it's um, an ideology that's potentially appealing to many different states. So could you tell us a bit more about um, authoritarian modernization in particular and how did it become a sort of theoretical framework for your book? Well, obviously, the idea of modernization, especially today, is seen by many to be inherently authoritarian. Um, yet I really want to show in this book that Sukarno's effort, his you know so-called revolution, uh, while resulting in the death of Indonesia's uh, liberal democracy experiment in the 1950s, was one that was animated by what he saw as a form of democratic oversight against the looming threat of expert control. So in this sense, Sukarno had been adamant to stress the democratic nature of his revolution, as can be seen in its name, guided democracy, right? It was an effort to position the people in the process of planning and its implementation through institutional innovations in the National Planning Board, government-owned corporations, and so forth. In its implementation, it obviously created a lot of problems, including corruption 
and the reduction of efficiency, but the democratic nature of his project, as Sukarno sold it, was very clear. Uh, while he saw democracy not through a liberal lens, seeing liberalism as an extension of Western imperialism, it was dem- nevertheless democratic uh, in its conception. Um, the implementation of a managerial state, the managerial ideology that was championed by the United States through their aid program, was inherently authoritarian as well. Sukarno understood this undemocratic nature of the new elite ideology of managerialism. Yet what is so interesting is that despite the machination of the guided democracy to achieve some sort of balance between development and popular representation, the end result would still be the formation of an authoritarian developmental state. Now the question is, did Sukarno fail? Or was this, uh, was this a normal result of an implementation of a developmentalist state despite the effort by Sukarno and others to uh, institutionally encompass political oversight by the people, as Sukarno had wanted to, and yet inherently resulting in a form of authoritarian democratization. This is why the link between development and authoritarianism uh, becomes a focal theoretical point uh, of this research. Right. And I think it is really interesting that you point out that Sukarno's um, conception of the state was democratic in its core, right? And and your question about did Sukarno fail? And that reminds me of the debate between Herbert Feith and Harry J. Benda about the state of democracy um, in Indonesia, where Feith saw the advent of guided democracy as the decline of constitutional democracy, which in a way means Sukarno failed. And Benda kind of saw it as a reassertion of traditional Indonesian political systems. So I'm wondering... Um, since in the introduction in your book, you rhetorically sort of ask, um, as Benda says, why would Indonesia be enthusiastic about democracy when it was never part of their cultural repertoire? Would it be right to say you are on the side of Benda in this debate? Yeah, interesting question, uh, Faiza. Um, I would say I'm actually more along the lines of Herbert Feith in this regard. Benda's argument was that Indonesia's cultural memory of Javanese or traditional statehood which lacked a liberal democratic component, made the possibility of creating a real liberal democracy impossible. Yet, you know, since the fall of Suharto, Indonesia has been quite a successful democratic state in implementing, you know, a raucous, chaotic democracy, but which, at the end of the day, is considered by many to still sort of work. My argument would be a bit similar to faith in that the circumstances of the 1950s really was the reason for the demise of Indonesia's first experiment with democracy. In particular, I see the Cold War hegemonic imaginary of the managers as an important component in this regard as a backdrop or vessel for change in many societies throughout the third world. Uh, While many people blame this on American modernization theory, which is true to a large extent, I think it is also important to focus on the importance of local agency. Uh, The 1950s fixation on the managerial ideology provided the impetus, motivation, and model for changing democracy. But as we can see with Sukarno, it was a choice made by locals. Local agency was central. And the definition of the Indonesian managerial state on the one hand uh, and Sukarno's politician, military, and managerial model versus the new order, a purely manager model, which was both realized and defined by local Indonesian elites on the ground. So, you know, while the process of making it local seemed to support Benda's thesis going back to traditional Japanese statehood, what I really want to provide is actually a more nuanced picture, which would provide, which would combine both this international ideological support for managerialism and a pragmatic local approach um, that use that very well uses some cultural description of power and state society relations. So I guess in a sense, my answer is that uh, both sides really do matter, but uh, uh, but the conditions, the global conditions and the local conditions of the 1950s, 
and underlying ideology at the time really provided the impetus for the shift towards uh, towards uh, the the authoritarian democratic the authoritarian states of the new order. Uh, because you know one thing which we cannot uh, answer uh, in the negative is you know we we wouldn't we don't know why uh, had liberal democracy continued in Indonesia uh, in the fifties it would have created a normal state as well you know so the, the 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 fact that liberal democracy failed in the fifties that's what's important to understand why did it fail and in this case I feel like the most pertinent answer to that has to. Re- has to lie in within this context of of the, of the managerial ideology that that was permeating the globe at the, at the time. And I want to pick up on your point about uh, international support. I think for this sort of managerial the, the development of this managerial class, and uh, we see that I think in the uh, nations of the global north and what is now the global north and the global south connecting through the circulation of technocrats, and um, that's more commonly associated, I think, with the new order period. Uh, but could you tell us a bit more about how global powers are supporting or challenging political developments in Indonesia during this uh, guided democracy, as well as maybe the liberal democracy period? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the advent of technocracy in Indonesia and many other parts of the world was, well, especially in Indonesia's case, developed through international aid structure uh, in the context of the Cold War. And so Soviet and communist aid mainly supported military procurement of weapons and engineering education. It was really the American aid in providing secondary and tertiary education in America and in Indonesia, which focused on social science, uh, including education in business management and public administration. So there's definitely a strong Cold War component in allowing this generation to appear. Yet it must be emphasized that American aid did not inculcate Indonesian experts to be supporter of dictatorships. Such supports came in the form of a logical conclusion to the needs of state-led development. So in many ways, the ideological tool that was offered by managerialism was met with Indonesian ideas of pragmatism and the needs of the state, along with a new bureaucratic elite and their effort to regain control from non-state elements, including from the various political elites that have developed during Indonesia's nationalist movements up to uh, independence. So I guess you know it's a mixture of American aid and the need uh, of the state to implement a strong form of development. And this became the legitimacy for a new elite, one which they took uh, with relish, but in which, again, in, in that sense, global power is a core component in understanding why they uh, appear. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, this support from global powers also took a bit of a dark turn in the sense that you argue that the Indonesian state later became a kind of counter-insurgency state. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Why do you make this argument and how does a counter-insurgency state function? When I started doing my research, it was focused on managers or on production of uh, administration, public administration, business managers, and so forth. What I found uh, immediately was just the the presence of the military uh, managers within both uh, public and business uh, 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 management in Indonesia during that time. In a way, both military and civilian managers and experts shared insights the same insights that was important in understanding uh, Indonesian state-society relations that were developed in the 50s. And really, uh, that, that insight was the need to rein in what they considered to be a highly politicized society. Now, this is a, a central narrative in Indonesian uh, New Order Indonesian history, that Indonesian society was chaotic and thus they failed to develop as a result of the politicization of society. If we read into the books of both military managers, especially those within the army officer schools, 
and the various ma- management magazines that were published in the 1950s, they often featured military leaders like uh, the head of the Indonesian army, General Ahana Sution, or some of the commanders of the military command, uh, and particularly the commander of the West Java military command, Ibrahim Aji. And oftentimes they point out the need to form population control. Within this vision, uh, which are shared by Indonesian economists and experts as well, Indonesian society was seen as being infiltrated by enemies from communism, radical Islam, Western liberalism, and so forth. So this kind of doctrines defines the population as enemies, which require various avenues of control. Uh, this point to the idea of counterinsurgency as a central part of the managerial state, in which population would be redefined as potential threats uh, for insurgencies. Um, in this Cold War atmosphere, there was a belief amongst some in the army that the formation of a developmental state required the integration of the army within that state in order to allow for population control. And this, of course, happened by the mid-50s upwards, and but especially during the guided democracy where the army uh, sort of you know, came into all various parts of society and state in Indonesia. And this idea was something shared by, by experts. So in this regard, Indonesia's developmental state and its managerial ideas and ideology very much incorporated ideas of counterinsurgency in which uh, they saw uh, the population as a as a uh, field for for uh, applying disciplinary actions to allow for control, which they saw as central to providing uh, development uh, for Indonesia. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to the podcast. We are with Dr. Farah Bifake talking about authoritarian modernization in Indonesia's early independence period, um, published by Brill in 2020. And um, in the earlier part of this episode, we have talked about the concept of um, guided democracy revolution, how this was supported by um, aid during the Cold War, and the emergence of an Indonesian managerial state. Let's sort of build up on that, um, because as I understand from your book, the development of science um, also grew and was enabled by this sort of politics of authoritarian modernization during this period. Can you tell us more about this process and also why you saw this modernization also as a process of free traditionalization, which is a very counterintuitive observation? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I guess going back to our previous discussion, the way in which uh, many Indonesian leaders, including Sukarno, but also Nasution and others, in uh, defining a new relations between state and society is often based on traditional ideas, right? Just Javanese notions of citizens within a familial context. The familial ideology of the new order state and its roots in continental legal ideas, which has been you know expounded by David Bourchier, among others. Uh, Bourchier has shown that it has roots in Adat ideas developed during the Dutch colonial period, uh, thus pointing it to actually being partially Western, in particular Dutch or German origins. Um, in this regard, I focus on the discourse of Indonesian elites. Regardless of its hybrid Western-Indonesian roots, the idea of controlling Indonesian population through a new form of relationship between the state and society, or a familial one, was something that was voiced as, as a form of going back to tradition. So, yet importantly, this engagement with traditions, i.e. with sort of feudal traditions of society, 
in which people were under the behest of their leaders were conjoined with modern ideas of managerialism, and they saw no problem in this in this context. Uh, thus, the ideology of scientific managerialism was conjoined with the ideas of so-called traditional statehood rooted in Indonesian history. The idea of uh, the role of Indonesian uh, society, especially those on the, the the masses, are discussed both in managerialist terms, but also in uh, traditional Japanese terms. So in that sense, the, the, the root reason for this is because the endpoint is still the same, the creation of a strong state with various means of control for the population, which which is the end goal of, of the, the idea. And, you know, this just points out to the way in which such global ideologies are localized, whereby local agency, in particular, in this case, Indonesian leadership, which for the most part are or has their roots in uh, Javanese aristocracy, played the most decisive role. And so they they sort of conjoined ideas of, of Javanese aristocracy, which either developed, you know, which, which is something which, you know, as Benda has, has mentioned, is rooted much deeper in Javanese statehood, which, as Boshir has shown, has, you know, colonial roots as well, uh, sort of that ideology of the, of the colonial period, but also present period, where the, the 50s, where it can be conjoined into uh, these uh, modern notions of managerialist ideology. Is this specifically Javanese traditionalization, do you see, or is it also happening in other parts of uh, Indonesia? Well, I, you know, I don't look at it. Uh, um, my main focus is on reading the, the discourse that are produced by uh, leaders, Indonesian leaders. And what's really interesting, of course, is that uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the kind of feudal notion, Javanese notions that are used to support the uh, other managerialist claim, for the most part, they use Javanese ideas of statehood or citizenship, Kaula Gusti and so forth, right? So, and the idea of uh, the sort of noble, noblesse oblige ideas of the Javanese aristocracy placed in a different context. So in that sense, it's very much, a, from what I've read so far, it's it's a very, there's a very strong Javanese um, roots to this discussion uh, used by by now so-called modern Indonesian managers, but, you know, they, they still use the, um, and they, they use very Javanese notions, Javanese philosophies, Javanese sayings, uh, which became prevalent in the New Order period, right? But it, we, we see this in the 50s already by, by people who are supposedly westernized, you know, supposedly highly are Western mod, uh, uh, managers. Right. And there's a fascinating aspect of the discourse that I think has not been um, centralized much in the literature, I just want to kind of um, pick up on an earlier point that we talked about that you mentioned briefly, I think, in the earlier um, segment, which is about the rise of a military elite um, during this period under study. And there were three chapters, I think, in your book that concern um, the formation of this elite. Could you also share with us some of your key findings about the position of the military elite during the um, liberal democracy and guided democracy period? And do you see in this period the beginnings of the oligarchy that um, the new model was most famous for. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I look at the Indonesian military elites um, as I've described them as central to the creation of the developmental state um, through a couple of means. So on the one hand, from an institutional point of view, um, the military's role in, for instance, nationalizing Dutch-owned companies at the end of the 1950s, they really strengthened their position as a core component in the Indonesian managerial class. Uh, that's why if you go to uh, the various management courses that appeared in the end of the 50s. It's always uh, a collection of military and civilian managers running the companies that are 
you know, now uh, being taught these various manage- management courses. On the other hand, the army of itself, of course, uh, developed its doctrine, which uh, focused on the idea of what's uh, now known as the Karya, Karya doctrine, or the military dual function role that uh, was sort of the backbone of the new order military uh, state, right? So the expansion of army positions into various sectors of Indonesian lives. This isn't the new order phenomenon. In fact, it's really started uh, under guided democracy. In fact, if you look at like the number of governors, army governors of provinces during Sukarno's last year in power, in comparison to, to Suharto's early years of new order period, there were more military governors under Sukarno than under Suharto. Um, now, I, I don't really focus on the oligarchy, uh, which is really looking at the relationship between army and private sector, and which this period definitely, but you know, this this period definitely uh, formed the back backbone for the relationship, which would later on create the uh, new order uh, oligarchy. But definitely, at, at the doctrinal level, at the institutional level, at the expanding military role in companies in uh, during the fifties. And the creation of new relationship with a lot of mostly, you know, for instance, Chinese bis- Indonesian businessmen, uh, we can see very much then that that, that uh, this, although it's not the focus of my research, that the the, the, the oligarchy uh, is very much rooted uh, during this this period. Thank you for highlighting. I think I think a certain conflation in my question that 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 conflates state society relation with the sort of uh, army uh, private sector. Connection. I think I think you're absolutely right that um, these are two different um, set of connections that, that perhaps should be examined um, separately. I think I want to also look at how you disrupt some of the well-established categories such as leftist, liberal, communist, and so on. Um, so when you push back this idea that the template for 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 the for the military elite was set in the 1950s, then the emergence of the uh, the kind of repression of the political left in the new order takes on a different significance. So could you tell us more about how in your the last set of the book you add nuance to, to the history of how these categories, leftist, liberal, communist in particular, came to be applied to Indonesian politics? And how did they um, illustrate, as you argue, that the difference between the guided democracy and the new order lay not between capitalism and liberalism, and communism, but between a state-centered and a participative type of ideology. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, uh, thank you. So, and yeah, my main argument really is on this uh, level in that, um, you know, to understand this period in Indonesian history, we really need to require to rethink about the Cold War divide. Because, I mean, there certainly was a divide, in particular the divide between the politicians versus the experts. And this is something that's not unique to Indonesia, as we've seen and this is, this is, of course, the discussion by Herbert Feith, right, about the division between the uh, solidarity maker and the, uh, and the administrator. But you can see that in, in Pai's analysis of the Burmese uh, leadership or elite and also Schurman's uh, analysis of the Chinese, uh, communist Chinese leadership in the 50s as well in China. But what's really important is that it wasn't an ideological divide between the West and the East as commonly described but between what Sukarno had in mind with his direct democracy and a particular form of political participation. So Sukarno wanted to, in a way, save the politician in this new managerial mode of, of statehood versus a more state-centered one that required a more obedient form of relationship between state elites and society. So 
it is important not merely to define Sukarno's ideas as being to the left or on the east side, right? Uh, because, for instance, Soviet aid to the Republic was mostly along the lines of military hardware, and the Soviet-developed relationship with the Indonesian army. They also provided lots of aids for industrial development and provided engineering education to some uh, Indonesians. Thus, the Soviet was just as state-centered as the Americans. So in this regard, the division between capitalism versus communism might hinder our understanding of Indonesian history during this period instead of helping them because the question really then becomes what happens to efforts to create participative ideology, a participative type of ideology which Sukarno tried to implement and which in a way was uh, expressed most succinctly in the 60s in Indonesia with the Communist Party, the Indonesian Communist Party trying to enter into the state. Because what's interesting about Indonesian Communist Party, despite being, you know, it's the third largest communist party in the world, but it is not a, it is not a uh, controlling party, right? I mean, if you compare that to the Chinese Communist Party or the Soviet Communist Party, which, which controls the state, the Indonesian Communist Party is outside of the state. And this is where Sukarno's guided democracy revolution tried to sort of open up society and thus open up ability by organizations like the communist to participate in the state. So it's, it, 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 it is in a way to implement both a managerialist state form, but also one that would increase participation, increase a kind of idea of democracy, which Sukarno had. And um, the destruction of the Communist Party in 1965, that's in a way is really, really uh, can be looked at, of course, as a destruction of the left. But it can also be looked at within the context of the destruction of that participative type of ideology in comparison to the state-centered one, which was supported by the manage- the managers. Exactly. And I find it really interesting, I think, as um, a Singaporean interested in Indonesian um, politics, that I can find a lot of parallels, I think, between what you're describing just now about the demise, so to speak, of a participative type of ideology, dating also back from uh, to the 1950s and the 1960s. So I'm interested to know, and this is departing a little from your book, whether when we look regionally, do you think that um, Southeast Asian authoritarianism, uh, or authoritarians in Southeast Asia are learning from each other? Yeah, I, I think they do, uh, definitely, yeah. Because, you know, and particularly if you look at the New Order period, for instance, there are a lot of similarities between Suarto's New Order and the military regime of Myanmar under the, the SLO, the SLORC, the SLORC. And then, of course, uh, going back, Sukarno's vision of statehood itself, which he always positioned as a vision against what he saw as Western imperialism, in which, in, in his mind, uh, liberalism is, is very much part of Western imperialism. And, of course, his, in the later years of his rule, uh, in which he envisioned an arc of non-Western forms of third world development model, you know, his Pyongyang, Beijing, Hanoi, Jakarta axis, which, of course, never went anywhere, but which was the latest of his foray into creating a different model for development in the third world, is so-called new emerging forces. So in a way, this arc of experimental, non-liberal, developmental state that was participatory, and its demise towards a strong military state in the third world is shared by many other nations. It's interesting how, how, how much parallel it, 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 uh, it, it, uh, there are. Um, so it, it allow, allowing some form of mimicry and learning uh, from each other. Of course, the question... Uh, which really uh, is, is important is, is to understand why, why why is this participatory of democracy that Sukarno envisioned failed? 
Although, you know, and again, it, it really depends on the local conditions uh, because I would imagine it's very difficult to replicate Singaporean version of, of authoritarianism with Indonesia just merely by looking at how different the two countries are. But definitely it's a transnational process. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, mimicry, there's a lot of borrowing. And, and, and this aspect is something which I think has potential to, to be developed in the understanding uh, why the third world project failed the way it did uh, in the in the sixties seventies upwards. Mm, definitely, and one of the legacies that we're living with uh, in terms of the sort of authoritarian history is 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 a current research environment in some ways. And I'm, I I want to sort of move into your personal experiences in this direction. Did you find it difficult researching an authoritarian? I mean, the history of kind of authoritarian past, and how? What would your advice be to maybe junior scholars who are looking to do the same thing in Southeast Asia or Indonesia in particular? Well, you know, my advice would probably be from what I've really learned. But I, you know, I, one thing which I haven't really uh, developed that much further uh, is the potential of looking at it as a transnational or global processes, but one in which it is very much ensconced within local dynamics. So I suppose the better approach would be to conduct a comparative historical analysis as is you know, usually conducted by political scientists with a historical approach. And many books have been developed within this comparative approach, which, you know, Linda Lowe and so forth. And, and these are very uh, insightful. So, you know, my book is not this type of political science approach because I'm primarily an historian and my focus has been mainly to develop a more nuanced understanding of Indonesian history during this interesting period, but obviously I think we can uh, sort of develop this further in in a more comparative transnational uh, approach, which uh, I think has a lot of potential for for uh, for saying something new on on this topic. Yes, and I think um, moving sort of transnationally is going to generate uh, like maybe ten PhDs dissertations, hopefully. Um, yeah. So thank you for that that, that tip. As you sort of refer to the literature that that you used in your book, could you maybe share with us some of the interesting books that you found um, in your research, which you think could be underread or underrated, and you would like to recommend to the listeners at the New Books Network? Yeah, well, you know, and, and this is probably one of the most difficult uh, questions, actually, because there's so many interesting stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, to, I would really argue we should go back to reading the old classics, in particular, I would argue, you know, um, rereading uh, stuff like Herbert Feith's uh, a book on on uh, Indonesian in the 1950s, Indonesian political history in the 1950s, with a with a fresh perspective that we now know and have today. Right? Uh, in doing so, we'll you know we're able to sort of reread it in a different manner because, in a sense, also uh, these books were part of history. They, you know, they're, they're, they're really historical sources because they, they, they shape in part how not only academics, but how Indonesians uh, elite uh, view or engage with, with the, uh, with the uh, subject matter at hand, with the state, with the society. I mean, obviously, uh, in that level, a lot of uh, modernization theory books that have been published, Michael Latham and, and so forth. Who sort of criticized American modern, uh, modern modernization theory? That kind of work is is interesting, uh, and it would be it would be included within, so we can then read read these older uh, texts um, more critically. So I guess maybe mm-hmm. yeah. So you know, going back to the to the classics and sort of re engaging with them. That's really you know, I'm mean, obviously that's what you're, you're going to have to do anyway. But 
I, I would stress on 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 the on the sheer importance of of that uh, act, I guess. Uh, that reminds me, I'm I'm quite inspired to do that as well because uh, yeah, you've made quite a persuasive case for that. Uh, before we end, uh, could you tell us a bit more about your next research project? Yeah, well, you know, currently I'm writing a paper on the revolutionary period, and what I meant by that, of course, the the Indonesian uh, Revolution for Independence, 1945, 1950, um, and I, I'm looking at uh, the city of Yogyakarta, the capital city, the uh, the revolutionary capital of the Republic of Indonesia at that time during the war for independence between 1946 and 49, and uh, it's actually currently my place of residence. And in that research, I look at into the way the spaces of the city is used symbolically by the Republican elites at that time, including President Sukarno, but also uh, by other parties, for instance, various political groups, to effectuate the Republic as a real thing. Because we have to remember that during this period, there was a war with the, with the Dutch, and you know the, the state itself doesn't really exist. It had to sort of be conjured. And this happened, of course, during the wartime period. But, you know, the earnestness in Indonesia to perform the idea of independence within the capital was something that really informed us of how the capital, the state itself, would eventually be affected in the post-colonial period. So I look at how exactly life was like there in the uh, in the in the capital. Uh, another aspect which I look is, uh, in particular, are stuff like sports or the pop cultural life of the Republican elites in the capital. So what kind of music and plays and theaters were performed and what themes did they explore uh, during a period of duress under uh, the threat of, uh, of Dutch attack? Mm, that sounds super fascinating. And I think sports, but in particular, is a, is a new angle to which to think about the revolution. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Just as a kind of uh, taster for what's to come. What really animated the idea... Uh, of rereading the history of the revolution in the context of the revolutionary capital for me was uh, was really the idea of, of Judith Butler uh, in, in mm-hmm. uh, analyzing performativity in, in its relation with identity, how people perform their identity within the space. And so the idea of performing the nation was something that obviously had always been interest to me because uh, during my bachelor's degree, my research was into looking at how Sukarno form Jakarta's spaces in order to be performed as a republican, but also as a global and non-imperialist capital. So the interest on performance, identity, and space was a feature that always interested me. There's one thing that can be tied to the to the book book project, which I'm doing now, on the research on, on youth and sport during the revolution. So the idea of participation and how one crafts or control participation. This is something which I think Sukarno intuitively saw as central to state power. Sukarno... You know, he, he's, he's a very interesting person. He had, Sukarno's idea always had a very strong element of theatricality. He's, a, you know, he's an orator. He, he, he looks at the world as a stage. Um, and, you know, and this is something which continued strongly after independence. And, but really, including in the formation of the diverse array of new institutions in the name of development. So what I, what, what I saw, one of the ma- major interests I saw was how exactly did Sukarno saw Yogyakarta as a theater. How did he, how did he, uh, and, and you know, not just Sukarno, but also other elements, youth elements, how did they sort of use Yogyakarta to sort of proclaim their legitimacy within the new republic? And it, it's it's interesting because, uh, and then you can see then that the developmentalist ideas that Sukarno envisioned later on in during the 50s, these ideas already existed during the, the revolutionary period. Uh, but also the kind of participatory nature that 
indigenous society would, uh, you know, be expressed within its politicized uh, civil society. That existed as well during this period in which there was a major war between the Dutch and the Indonesian Republic. But, you know, why was this why was this performance of the nation within that small, uh, you know, space of the capital? Why was it so important? And you know, why was it? Why was it? Why was it? Why was it performance, and in in its enunciation, so central to making it real to the Indonesian audience, but also to the audience uh, outside of Indonesia. So it had to. The republic really didn't have a place, but you know, it had to be performed so that people knew that it that it was there before uh, Indonesia gained independence. Yes, it, it sounds like really groundbreaking research and I'm really excited about it. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, thank you. It has, it has been a real delight to chat with you. Thank you. Um, and thank you too to all listeners. You have been listening to New Books in Southeast Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network discussing Farah Bifaki's um, authoritarian modernization in Indonesia's early independence period. The Foundation of the New Order State, 1950 to 1965, available and published by Brill in 2020. I hope you have enjoyed um, the conversation. Join us next time.